According to Lynn Jordan, former president of the Cortez Island Museum, there have been telephones on Cortez Island for more than 110 years. They arrived in 1910. But that was only phones at the stores. So if you want to make a phone call, you had to go to a store. They were radio phones. And with that also came a telegraph line. So the stores also had telegraphs. When that line came from Sarah Point, there was a logging family on Marina Island, which was then called Mary Island. The Marlat family had a big two-story house on the west side of the island looking towards Quadra. Then on the east side, almost directly across from Manson's, they built a huge wharf so they could ship their logs out. Union steamships could then come into that dock as well. There was quite a large population living on the island. One of the Marlette's sons was the first postmaster, and that was why the telegraph was put in at the post office. The telegraph line went to the post office on the other side of the island, so telegrams could come and go at the post office. And in those days, the stores were also the mail depot. There wasn't separate post offices. Which stores are we talking about? We're talking about Whale Town, Squirrel Cove, and Manson's. People could either make calls from the store or send telegrams. Telegrams were really cheap. They were so much for 10 words and so much for 100 words. People got really good at confining their messages to 10 words. Telegraphs that came in for people were just put in an envelope and then pinned on the bulletin board at the store. Then they either had to check themselves or a friend would tell them that there was a message there for them. Eventually, I believe it was in the 30s when the Union steamships had radio phones installed on their ships. They could then phone ahead to let stores along their route know their expected arrival times since their schedules were a little difficult to keep. Going back to the Mary Island logging family, in the 1920s, he had a crank phone on the wall. In his house, there was nobody from British Columbia Telephone who came to string the lines or anything. It was all done by locals and work bees, and they strung the lines on poles in some cases, but also they used the trees. Ned Breeze and his wife Eliza, who lived right on the shallow side of the entrance into Gorge Harbor, they had a crank phone in their house in the late 20s. The line for that was strung from the northeast corner where Ben Fulton lives today. It's at the bottom of the hill where Hanson Creek comes in and the road has two little bridges over the creek. So it would have gone along the shore all the way out to the entrance of the Gorge Harbor, and it was strung on trees all the way out there. There was nobody else living on that side at that time. There was later, but they would have had phones added in from the same line. The thing with those crank phones was they were basically set up in four networks related to the four stops for the Union steamships. So one network would be Whale Town, the other one would be Manson's, Squirrel Cove, and Cortez Bay which is where the ships were coming in on a regular scheduled basis. Uh, there were other places they stopped too, but not every time, like Seaford. Everybody could hear when somebody was making a call. If you 
knew somebody's particular ring or you just wanted to see who was being called, you could pick up your phone and listen to their conversation. So you didn't have any privacy on your calls for one thing, but also it was a way that news could be spread or in the case of an emergency, help could be called for. In that sense, it helped join the communities. But all those long and short rings that people had, I just found out recently that those long and shorts were actually Morse code letters. Maybe it was your name or your initials or something that were your ring. How many characters long would a ring be? Sometimes they were four or five. Could they phone out? No, it was just on Cortez Island. You couldn't call from one network to another. In Whaletown, you could only call all the people that were on it in Whaletown. You couldn't call to Manson's. Was there an operator? No, you just rang and the person would pick up. But everybody could hear the ring in your network. And more than one person could talk at a time. I've never found when they actually stopped. And I don't think it was like a dead cutoff. I think some of them worked for a while afterwards. Often the lines came down because of trees falling or snow, winds, heavy rain, whatever. Same as today, the telephone lines come down. So that was a big struggle. In the 1930s and 40s, Mr. Hawkins, who lived at the mouth of the lagoon, had a lot of eggs he was shipping out to Vancouver every week on the Union steamships from Manson's Landing. He was literally shipping hundreds of dozens every week, mainly to the hotels in Vancouver. He wanted to be able to make phone calls from home to his contacts in Vancouver, and he had a line strung from the store, which was at the head of the wharf, across the Oak Lagoon to his house. It was a huge three-story house, not too much longer after that. A new float plane pilot was delivering some passengers from Campbell River. We asked some of the other pilots what the best way was to come into Manson's Landing for the wind that was happening that day. They told him he should circle around, go over the lagoon, cross over where the entrance is, and come in landing to where the dock was. So he did that. It was evening and the light wasn't all that good. So he came in and everybody who happened to be around there, people on boats and people from the store, everybody came in down to the dock to welcome him. They gave him a round of applause and started congratulating him. He had no idea why they were doing this. He had actually flown underneath the phone line that Hawkins had strung across the entrance, which at that time did not have any markers on it. Very shortly after that, there were markers hung on that line, but nobody had told him about the line. He just came in really low to land. The other thing that became popular was the radio phones, and they were built by Tyndall and Spilsbury. Jim Spilsbury grew up on Savory Island. That was always his home base. He and Tyndall built these big, the radios, with a huge battery pack that went with them, and they took up considerable space. They were on some of the early fish boats. They were in homes that lived along the water. You had to have an open area for reception. You couldn't be hidden in the trees somewhere. 
many of the stores installed one. Spillsbury and his wife lived on their boat most of the time because not only did he go all up and down the coast on the boat to sell and install these big radios, they required a lot of service. You probably remember the old glass tubes and big batteries. <laughs> he called in regularly at, at various docks and they'd stay there for a week or so and service all the boat radios that were using that dock. He went as far as the northern part of Vancouver Island. It took him too long to get to places. So he learned how to fly and he bought a small float plane and was using it to service particularly further away up the northern coast. Eventually, Spillsbury hired another pilot or two. He had a couple more planes and he incorporated a company as BC Air for servicing and purchasing and all that. When radios became smaller and didn't need so much servicing, he wasn't required to fly very far for servicing the old radios. Gradually, people got rid of these big old things that took up so much room and put in smaller ones. So he sold his airline to CP Air, and that was the beginning of CP Air's expansion on the coast. It wasn't until really the 1950s that residents started hoping for proper phone system like people elsewhere. In 1961, the Welltown Community Club contacted the Public Utilities Commission, drawing attention to the very unsatisfactory state of the phone service. Four years later, they wrote again, the British Columbia Telephone Company had by then let them know a proposed route from Whaletown to Manson's Landing along the shore, outside of Gorge Harbor, all the way around. Not many people lived out there. So they wrote a letter asking for them to change the route. It took a good year. Finally, they sent some surveyors over and the route was changed to follow the main roads. It was a hot summer. The roads were gravel, so they were dusty. They had one of those measuring wheels that they had to wheel along everywhere to map the route and make all the measurements. Well, of course, all the residents that were wanting phones kept them well supplied with cooling refreshments so that they could continue their job. But at this time, telephone systems everywhere were changing and being modernized and upgraded. And the original plan had been for a microwave system with buried lines and not strung lines. They thought like in a month they would have their phones. But it was two more years before they were finally hooked up to BC Tel's newest grid system. That was in 68. They had to lay a new submarine cable from Sarah Point on the mainland across to Cortez. This line actually came to Cortez, but then it was going on to Quadra and then Campbell River as well to hook them up into the main grid for BC Tel. It was a much larger line, but still only enough lines to Cortez to have party systems. After the ferries had come in 69, a BC Tel crew came to the island to lay a larger underground line from the ferry terminal to the wharf side of Whale Bay so that it would provide a payphone at the terminal. It was the first payphone on the island. When they first proposed the phones for the island, they didn't think everybody would sign up for one. 
So they hadn't planned for heavy cables. And of course, with the coming of the ferries, the population was increasing. So they were upgrading constantly. In 71, uh, there was a major glitch in the system. The highways department road crew inadvertently cut the main cable that was coming into the transmitting station up on Rexford Road. That particular news story was picked up by a Campbell River radio station who broadcast it repeatedly, like in every one of their newscasts. They told who and how the cable had been cut, much to the chagrin of the Department of Highways, for their faux pas in digging up the cable. <laughs> the 1970s was when there was more and more phones being installed on the island, and pay phones were added to all the government wharves. The only odd one that didn't have one right at the wharf was Gorge Harbor. They put it at the hall instead, which made more sense to them at the time. With the advent of uh, cell phones in the 2000s, most of the pay phones were removed. The last ones were 2014, the Gorge Hall and the Whaletown store pay phones were removed. The Whaletown booth up by the store remained and got covered with California lilac and blackberries. But the new owners of the property who now have a private home there, they have re since removed. The only one that was left was the one at the Gorge Harbor store because of the campground and the number of boats that come in at the dock. It's still in use because the Gorge Harbor is such a dead zone for cell phones. You've been listening to Lynn Jordan, former president of the Cortez Island Museum, explain how telephones came to Cortez Island.